Welcome to VS Voices. I'm Amanda Ducadene. Bubu Ogisi is a Lagos-based designer and a member of this year's Lagos House. In this interview, we're talking about how she infuses spirituality into her design process, the ritual of masquerades, and how she believes the new currency in today's world is privacy. Good morning from New York. Good afternoon from Venice. How are you doing? Venice. Yeah. Venice, California, Venice, Italy. Venezia. Venezia. All right. That's much better than Venice, California, I will say. (laughs) I just want to say for anyone listening, Boo Boo is sitting outside in Venice. So if you hear birds and any nature sounds, it's because you're sitting outside in beautiful greenery. I'm in the garden. Um, I'm at the Venice, uh, the Biennale Architectura. Um, and I was, I was trying to go back home, but I missed the boat. And I was like, okay. <laughs> this works great. It's a, it's a, it, nature is the perfect soundtrack for the background. So if anyone can hear birds, you're right. You're hearing birds. <laughs> so you said you first fell in love with fashion when you were three years old. Yeah. Do you remember what that moment was? So when I was three years old, I had a party to go to and the outfit I wanted to wear was this turquoise um, short little dress that had a star in the middle and I think it was in the wash. And <laughs> and I, I'm sure with you, when you have that one outfit you love wearing, you always want to wear it for a particular period of time. So it was in the wash and it wasn't dried yet. So I, <laughs> I cried so much that they made that dress dry immediately. <laughs> and that was the only dress I wanted to wear to that party. And everyone had to run helter-skelter to make sure it, it was perfect for me. So, yeah, I always know what I want and what I want to wear. And if I'm not comfortable with it, I don't think that I feel good or I would look good. So I wouldn't wear it. So, yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. (laughs) I'm with you. If you don't like what you're wearing, it can change how you feel. Exactly. Yeah. The feeling of the spirit is really important in how you put something on yourself too, because I believe the body in itself is the ultimate canvas of carrying whatever feeling or expression you want to carry. So if you're not comfortable in that, I don't see why you should be why you should be wearing it. I mean, comfort aside, if you don't feel like you embody that piece in itself, um, I don't think you should be wearing it because there are many times I wear pieces that are uncomfortable that but to me the look is the ultimate solution to my issues. <laughs> the look comes first. How I look essentially is how I would feel how I feel like about myself so yeah the look is always premier in every decision I make (laughs) what about situations where you want the look but it is uncomfortable to wear the look the look comes first (laughs) okay I was that's what I thought I was just double checking just double checking respect for that (laughs) and I read that your dad lived in London while your mom lived in Lagos yeah so as a kid, what did you notice about the difference between how British women dress compared to Nigerian women? Oh, um, I mean, essentially the average Nigerian woman is all about being flamboyant, um, excessive with colors and fabrics and volumes and everything essentially. I used to sit down and watch my mom dress up every single day because she would drive me to school or pick me up from school or I would have to wait for her to get dressed because she'd be taking me to school and then going to work. So it was always three hour long wait of somebody getting dressed. And I was like, why is it taking you? So you long? or her. <laughs> I'm like, why is it taking you so long to get dressed when it takes me like five minutes to get dressed? 
So it's always about how she relates everything, how this, the shoe and the bag must always go with the the headgear because she was also really obsessed with headgear, same as me now, and how the headgear would match the the shawl, the bag, or the and the jewelry had to all be silver. If it's all silver, it's all silver. If it's all gold, it's all gold. It's, including the neck piece and there was no mixture. And I think that's me too. I can't, I don't know how to mix silver or gold or bronze. It just looks wrong to you when it's like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if I'm wearing bronze, it has to be all bronze. And if I'm wearing silver, it will be all silver. So yeah, essentially it's all about looking at how she calculated everything and being obsessed with mathematics. Also myself, it's also about how calculation of self has to go within on the exterior, but also in the interior also. What does that mean? Can you expand on that a little bit for me? I think it's how you calculate your look together. I think everyone doesn't see any mathematical effect into how you dress, but essentially it's all about calculations. If you don't calculate how you're going to feel, you're not going to understand or calculate how you're going to look also in that day. So that's how you have people looking really bland or crazy. Yeah, really off, yeah. Because there's there's no calculation. So what's the calculation for you? How does that work? So for me on a normal day, I have to, it's usually um, with me, it's the bag has to match the shoe. That's the first thing mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of colors. And if depending on what hat I'm wearing, the hat also has to match with the outfits that I'm wearing. So it's about fixating on the colors, the shapes, the volumes, seeing how I can add something here, or add something there or take away or minus or multiply. <laughs> um So I think that's essentially how I get dressed every day. And outside of it being me putting myself first with the outfit, I also see, want to see how I can also like inspire or make somebody else's day happy with how they see me. Do you do this automatically? Do you do these calculations automatically? I bet you're really fast at it now, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. That's like your language. Yes, exactly. Language of the body, language of material. Yeah, essentially I do speak with my clothing because growing up I was really shy. So speaking with what I was wearing was essentially how I would speak to people. My first statement would be my outfit. Communicate. That was your tool for communicating. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) You said that the average Nigerian family is very far from the ideology of what is perfect in the Western world. Can you tell me what you meant by that? It's a very different scenario when you have brothers or sisters that do essentially have to come from the same uh, mother or father or finding out you have brothers and sisters as opposed to the idea of having the perfect nuclear family, you know, the mother and father staying together, raising children in the same home. It's it's a very different scenario in Nigeria coming from West Africa, essentially, I think the idea of community of figuring out how essentially different people might be part of your family and you may never know them or have never met them is something that you have to also come to terms with usually. And I think that's the difference. It's not about creating this perfect scenario. It's all about incorporating how different people essentially come together and create this community and family and I think to me, that's essentially different from what the Western ideology of what family is. Growing up in school, they would teach us about nuclear families, polygamous families. And I guess in the communities or traditions that I come from, the idea of, I wouldn't say polygamy, but the idea of 
having multiple children is a thing that comes along with everything else in Africa also. Hmm. Do you mean like a father that has multiple children from multiple yeah. different moms? Yeah. Is that yeah. is that what happened with you? Essentially, my dad had me with my mom and then I have brothers also from my brothers, uh, his mom. And then my mom also has a my older sister who's not from my dad. too, So it's like a dysfunctional, cute. Well, it's what we would call a blended family. Exactly. A dysfunctional blended family. Yeah. Yeah, I yes, I know I know those very well. So, let's talk about when you left Lagos and you attended design school in Paris. Yeah. You were the only black student in your class and you I've I've heard you say that it was a defining moment for you when your teacher asked you to do a project about Africa, but not Egypt or Morocco, just black Africa. And <laughs> Why was this such a pivotal moment for you? Because um, I was a bit confused. I'd never, ever encountered anyone telling me there was a, a difference. I mean, growing up in, in Africa and going to school also in another African country, which was Ghana, we never had this discussion. So coming out of Africa and then going into school in Europe and someone is telling me, oh, you're not, this is not Africa. Egypt is not Africa. I was like, huh? But it's on the African continent. So it was a bit confusing for me. And it was the first time I had to come to terms with how the outside world of Africa perceives us as Africans, but Mm -hmm. also how even people who exist within the continent of Africa believe that they are not Africans, which I find so absurd because, I mean, if you are on the African continent, doesn't that make you an African? One would think. (laughs) I mean, it's really crazy. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's made me understand that, oh, wow, people do have different perspectives on um, themselves as Africans, but also people who are not even Africans have a different perspective also. And it made me want to also study and um, figure out what what is the connecting factor between all these things so I can make people understand that essentially they were wrong and the idea of that being right made absolutely no sense. Well, to that point, you've got four officers, <laughs> right? In Lagos, Accra, Dakar, and Nairobi. Yeah. Can you tell me why you've set your business up that way? It's not really offices. It's studio spaces and um, artisans that I work with. I see. My main studio space is in Lagos, and it's actually even more than that. It's Côte d'Ivoire, which is Abidjan also. I also work in Togo. I also work in Benin Republic, and I've also worked in Congo also and Tanzania. So it's all about researching within these different spaces, um, liaising with different artisans and craftsmen and uh, weavers and bronze makers and wood specialists. It's a whole lot of different people. Every single year, the list gets bigger and bigger because it's a continuous research in terms of mapping out these different creatives. I call them magicians Mm. who I create magic with. And essentially, I really want to open my mind and open the world's mind to different perspectives of what actual fashion is or what creating is. Um, And for me, it's about going somewhere, immersing myself within this period of time of continuity, going back there 
over and over again and then figuring out how to work with these people or what to create with them to also open up their mind to and to open up a newer perspective of what they're creating and essentially creating with them a newer world of imagination. Like what we discussed, clothing is a vehicle of communication. So I really want to use that as a moment to communicate with them in terms of, okay, if I'm weaving with weavers in Senegal, we're weaving uh, manjak and they've never incorporated plastic into that. It's about teaching them how to incorporate the idea of waste materials into that weave. Essentially, if I'm creating bronze materials in Côte d'Ivoire, Ghana, it's about creating something that they've never created, let's say a bag or a dress also from bronze. And I love the idea of just changing people's ideologies of what they've been creating through time constantly or you know, through history or through these ancient techniques and also reconfigurating those ideas to sort of create this cultural preservative system mm. in which they can now create new ideas, but also also preserve these techniques and these yeah, beautiful. Um, traditions. Yeah, exactly. That's beautiful. How do you select the artisans that you work with? Oh, wow. Uh, I usually tell any, it sounds crazy, but it's um, it's purely through energy. <laughs> oh no, that doesn't sound crazy to me. If you if you knew me better, you'd know that that makes complete sense. <laughs> My mom calls me a little witch because she says I observe people too much, and I always know when people are going to be disappointing or not. So I think for me, I always know when people have the heart of creating what I want them to create, but also the patience. Also, a lot of times when I'm in these different spaces, obviously they're not going to be speaking English, and I don't obviously know all the languages in the African continent. I only speak four out of all the thousands of languages that exist. It's not always us speaking the same language all the time. So it's also about engaging with spirits and having this connectivity with them, um, essentially engaging with these people and seeing, okay, this person seems like someone that has an amazing spirit. And a lot of the times um, they actually do not disappoint me, thankfully. And a lot of people say, oh, my artisans are in love with me. And I say, because I'm in love with them. Mm. Also, these are people that I create with. Essentially, I have to love them and they have to love me. It's a, I guess it's a cross-cultural interactive um, system of exchange. So there has to be that element of love because I don't think a lot of people that work with other people don't essentially put that little spice of affection into the people that actually create with them because it's all about this hierarchy system. But I try to remove those borders and I want to have that connection with the person so they understand what I want to create so that whenever they're creating too, they understand where I'm coming from so that they can also be able to produce something that essentially I would be able to produce also. How do you communicate that when you're speaking a language or you don't speak the same language? How do you do that? So I either draw or I either just tell them that I would show it to them. So most times I sit in their position and I have to show them how this is created. Um, For example, we just created this bronze brass piece for Victoria's Secret for this collection. And it was <laughs> it was a long, tedious uh, effect of uh, movement in terms of creating in four different spaces and having to finalize everything. But essentially, he had never created a bronze dress. It's usually jewelry he was creating. So me coming to him and saying, this is what I want. <laughs> he was like, okay, this person is mad. 
But then when I showed him the possibility, I've never done it before, but all these come to me in dreams and visions. So essentially, I'm able to now transfer those ideas from the spirit world into this physical world. And then I'm able to also, thankfully, direct him in certain ways, showing him, okay, this is how we're going to make the connections with this amount of width of brass um, wires. And then we connect them, make thousands of connections and circles cut them, we have to create the, cut out the shapes and then make further circulations in the actual brass shape so that its density is less for the body, which it's going to be put on so that it's not too heavy for the person carrying it also. Same thing with the glass piece we had to create. I went to work with some glass blowers in the middle of nowhere in Nairobi and they were like, what are you, what are you saying? Nobody wears glass as interest. <laughs> And it's the same process or effect. I have to be calm and be patient with them and say it's possible. Even though I've never done it before, I always have to tell them it's possible. But then that's the idea. I think it's always believing what is possible. I think whatever it is that we are envisioning now, no one thought video call could be possible like 20 years ago. So I guess it's just the idea of bringing things to life. And you said that your designs come from visions. Yeah, I, have, I usually have, uh, like, it sounds crazy. Yeah, I enjoy my dreams and my visions. Like, if I go to a gallery, something can just come to me in my head. And it, essentially, that's to me is the idea of changing something from what it usually is, or something randomly can just come to me when I'm sleeping. And then I wake up and then I have to write it down. Yeah, I was going to say, you have to write it down, I'm sure, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. You've been talking quite a lot about spirituality and I want to talk to you about your masks. Can you talk a little bit about the role that masquerade culture played in your childhood and and what role do masks play in your everyday life today? Okay, so growing up as a child, as a female child, essentially we weren't allowed to see masquerades. It's usually supposed to be only worn by men and also on most of the times in most cultures, only seen also by men. So Maybe you could explain what masquerades are so that people know. Oh, I mean, everyone should know what a masquerade is. Um, I guess traditionally masquerades are the embodiment of spirits. Um, in most cultures, they're used to celebrate coronation or also brought out in times of death also in order to lead the spirit into the other world peacefully and gracefully but in also in other times it's also used as a time for harvesting for a time of seasonal change it's it could be used for mostly just the the act of celebration whether it's in life or death too i think even in the form of harvesting, when things are growing out from the ground, that's actual life rebirth, or new birth of crops, a new market day. So all that is the use of the masquerade. And in my work, I usually use it to also celebrate the announcement or the reveal of my performance of a new project or of a new process. And I always say it's a moving ritual performance, which happens usually in an installation space, which I have to build. But it's usually something that I I think it's ceremonial and it's a ritual process that I think it's something that I always have to be doing at least twice a year. It's also, I guess, like I said, in form of a rebirth, a birth of a new idea, which I've come up with. So I, I love using the idea of a masquerade to celebrate that. I think most importantly, as I mean, as you can see, I'm very shy. So I usually wear 
wear the sunglasses and the hat. So the idea of anonymity or you know, hiding yourself, I guess guarding yourself more like from mm. the outside world is the idea of what essentially I love about masquerades because um, in other times they were used as a form of protection in terms of moving from one city to another city. So the masquerades would come out at night and sort of scare everyone in their homes and so everyone would stay in homes and then people would be able to migrate within these massive masquerade um, builds or, or garments and be able to sort of securely move from one place to another in times of wars or trouble. I love the idea of masquerades because of how you can use them for multiple things and how they sort of create different stories through different traditions and different cultures and different tribes. But I think I enjoy the materiality that goes into making them and how different materials can be used into making some things that nobody can even explain what they mean also. And also, though, it's very different to Western culture, which is about revealing everything. People live stream <laughs> their births, you know, yeah. on social media. It's completely the opposite. I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, I am challenged by that concept, too. I I feel like that's that's a bit too much of a reveal for me, but it's really directly in opposition to that concept, right? It is. I believe the new currency is privacy. I think the idea of knowing as little as possible is still very unique to our existence as human beings because essentially we don't know everything. So I think the idea of what is unknown to is also still very unique in creativity as you don't know what is within the spirit, but you don't, you just know what the spirit is embodying in terms of the way they dance, the way they move. Masquerades can represent different gods in terms of the god of space and time, the god of war, the god of water and abundance. So I think it's amazing how these different masquerades essentially come together. And I mean, in different parts of the continent of Africa have different celebrations at festivals to also celebrate this ancient culture, but also finding a way to preserve these cultures through time is essentially what my main research is about. I enjoy traveling through different countries and trying to figure out, okay, this is what happens here at this time and understanding how these communities thoroughly enjoy these things. I mean, they don't understand half of what's going on, but they know, okay, this is happening at this time every single year and we have to be part of it. You know, we talk a lot about, I mean, at least I do with my friends, about how a simpler life can allow space for a more spiritual life. Have you observed that with living and spending time with the different artisans in different communities and then also living in, you know, a very capitalistic culture as well. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, essentially, that's a major part of what my work is, anti-capitalism, because I believe everyone's trying to be so uh, sustainable and circular. But if you were living a much more simpler life, <laughs> you wouldn't be having these difficulties in which we're having with essentially a lot with plastic and other waste materials um, in terms of recycled clothing and everything. If we lived a much more simpler life, we would be able to, I guess, be more mindful with whatever it is that's happening around us and have lesser issues. But I think the human being is the human being and the human being enjoys chaos. And <laughs> Isn't that true? Yeah, that really is. So I want to talk a bit about your 2020 collection because it was called Chasing Evil. Yes. Why that name? So 
That was one of my favorite collections, actually. Thank you for bringing that. <laughs> I made that just before COVID was announced uh, in terms of the lockdown. I was in Nairobi and we had to finish making everything and I had to run back to Nigeria because I was like, if I had to die anywhere and it's the end of the world with COVID, okay, I might as well die where I was born. And that's obviously where my mom and my son are. So I was like, okay, let me just run back home. But before doing that, I was like, okay, I had researched the year before. We had spent about six or four months in Congo. And I was working with this community of survivors from the war. And it's a woman, female community. It's uh, called City of Joy. And we had to rehabilitate their minds. They were all rape victims from the war. So we had to use fashion to bring back their stability or their mind back to a certain state. And one of the things I said to them in that series was inspired by this spiritual figurine, which I discovered in, in Congress called Nkondi Nkisi. And you put it in front of your house when you're protecting yourself from evil. So essentially it chases evil away. So what I told them is that I want you to dress in a way that no man or any entity would be so afraid to even come near you or touch you or even try to rape you that you would have to be dressing like royalty or or be dressing in such a way that nobody would ever want to even think of harming you or even trying to do anything to you. So I guess the idea of chasing evil came from that figuring that I discovered in Congo. And I wanted to use that idea to also um, translate into the fabric. So that's where we created this fabric for the first time, where we interwove raffia, which I sourced in Congo also, and then cotton, um, organic cotton, which I sourced in Tanzania, and then we wove everything in um, Kenya. And the idea when we created the weave was to have the raffia sticking out like spikes uh, on a, the animal called is it a porcupine that has the oh, little yeah. spikes. So we mm -hmm. wove, when we wove the raffia, we cut it up in a way after so that it made, it made this like spiky effect on the fabric and that was the idea for Chasing Evil. The fact that also it's heavily inspired by the whole time I spent in Congo because I believe there's, there's only one country to me in Africa that literally is the the twin country to Nigeria. And I think that is Congo, definitely. Mm. And it's also one of the strongest countries, I believe, in the world, essentially being the country that can also super source and super like energize the whole continent with all the natural resources and all, all the amazing things that come out of that place. And it reminds me essentially of my country to Nigeria. Everything we have, even this microphone, this laptop, all the elements that go into this all come from Congo. So I believe for me, it's the idea of protecting self, protecting one's spirit. And essentially, what are we all afraid of? It's evil. So chasing evil for me is, you know, outside of just being afraid of evil, I want to confront evil head on. I want to go and look for the evil and chase the evil as opposed to having it come to me and chasing me. I would want to chase evil being proactive. Yes. How did the women respond to you said that you were using fashion to help their minds, to bring their minds back? How did that work? It went very, very well. I'm trying not to cry, but yeah, it was, it was one of the most emotional projects I've ever worked on because I had to put myself in their position. I had to put myself in their stories. I had to put myself in how I exist also as a woman, also in Africa, in a highly patriarchal society. And 
seeing how they also feel with themselves being armed in that process and how the idea of clothing in itself being that vehicle of communication is also a, a source of protection. The reason why we wear clothes every day is to also protect ourselves from anything, from harm. So for me, it was about teaching them how to sort of calculate how to use clothing, how to wear clothing, but also how to make clothing that would also protect yourself, protect your being, protect your soul and protect your spirit also. So it was a very emotional project for me. I enjoyed every moment. I enjoyed sharing the stories. I enjoyed seeing how they've also reformed with life. And I enjoyed most of all seeing their reaction to the pieces we made for them. Yeah, it sounds like it was a powerful experience for you and for the women that you worked with. Yeah. And testament to the fact that also fashion, which people sometimes, you know, (laughs) don't dismiss as being... Yeah, just fashion. Yeah, there's so much more that can be done and the, the power of fashion. Yeah, exactly. A lot of my work deals with removing borders and has this ideology of borderless constructs and concepts. I believe a lot of the situations we go through have been created through different concepts, which have to do with different things, social, political, religion, you know, race. So I guess removing all these things out of all these situations is essentially what my work essentially wants to focus on. And in this situation or in whatever it is that I'm creating with fashion, I want people to have a freer mind of reasoning, a freer approach to how to wear pieces or how to relate to fashion. Express themselves. Exactly. But also how to also see other people who are expressing themselves and not judge them. (laughs) Yeah. Allow a a larger space for everybody to express themselves in all different ways. Yeah. um, You go to other countries and you wear a pair of shorts and everyone is looking at you sideways or... You wear something that's see-through or mesh and everyone is like cover up one. You go to certain places and you're covered up and everyone looks at you you like, why is this person covered yeah. up? So I think um, a lot of us are hypernormalized to certain ideas or on fashion based on how we've been hypernormalized to be to be seen or to be fashionable. So it's about just allowing everybody to be. And maybe exposing people to, you know, for me at least, you know, I like anything that challenges people's concept of normal. Exactly. You know, and allows people to to expand what is acceptable for them. And I think you're also talking about that as well. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like you're always kind of researching different yes <laughs> concepts and ideas and yeah. what are you focused on at the moment what's inspiring you at the moment Ooh, architecture that's why i'm here in the middle of nowhere in this park in venice <laughs> <laughs> what kind of architecture are you looking at um the architecture of the body and space through time i believe the body exists within different spaces so I focused on on the body for the last 10 years. So I want to move into space now and see how the body um, reacts to space and how the space also reacts to the body. So essentially seeing the space as a spirit too, as well as the body as spirit. So the spirit also is space also. I guess in, in explaining that further is how 
you may enter a space and you may have this certain aura or energy come over you. And that's what happens to me most times when you enter a space, you're like, oh, no, I'm going. And then when you enter another space, you're like, wow, what is this? Mm -hmm. So I think it's about creating more of those spaces that transcend your energy and your spirit in a very mindful manner, but also using abstract materials that you essentially would never find within a space too. Well, you talked about working with the female form and I, that brings me to VS and yeah. working with them. So VS asked you to create a collection inspired by the female form. And what did you visualize when you heard that brief? So I was, um, I think since last year or two years ago, I started my research into ancient Yoruba and Edo mythology. So it's a continuous process in which I was researching. And at the time when they messaged me, I was literally at a voodoo festival in the middle of... Amazing. <laughs> in the <laughs> Republic. And I was like, yeah, essentially it's, it's whatever it is I'm creating for on this commission, it's, it's going to have to do with spirituality. And essentially you want to accelerate or celebrate the female form and I think there's no other way to do that more than talking about gods and goddesses because essentially those are the main essential processes in spirituality that accelerate the female form in different archetypes of the female or the female form how the female gets angry how the female can transcend through space and time how the female can be abundant how the female is fertile how the female is just this exceptional form of being. So I'm thankfully female. So I was like, wow, essentially I want to break down these archetypes into 10 different spaces and into 10 different forms and into 10, 10 different colors and also 10 different materials. So it was about creating a collection around all the materials that I've worked with previously and also transforming those materials in a new aspect of the idea in connection to the different gods and goddesses that we were referring to. Does each outfit represent a different goddess? Yeah, a, a different deity. So each deity was represented by a different color and a different material also. So we used brass and bronze for the goddess of all female goddesses, which is Yemoja. We use glass for Olukun, who's the goddess of the ocean or deity of the ocean, because it could also be the idea of Yoruba and Edo mythology, the construct of male-female does not also exist. So it's also about removing that construct, but still also exonerating the female form at the same time. We used red um, and we represented that with everything was made from uh, plastic handmade beads and we had to connect each of them also using plastic. It's really amazing. A lot of the materials we created was from scratch. We made all our materials from scratch. It was one piece we made. We had to wait for the worms. We used eerie silk worms. We had to wait for the worms to create the cocoons. And wow. <laughs> we had to now spin the silk, then dye it, and then weave it. So everything essentially that we made was all made from scratch and all made by hand. How extraordinary. My gosh. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> what do you hope will be the impact from 
creating this collection? Um, everyone asks me that, you know, and I never know the answer to that. Because <laughs> you're not making it for that. I mean, everyone makes things to hopefully have a good impact. I was just creating for myself, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I was just creating. Um, I'm ex- I love experimenting. So it was just a new form of me experimenting. And I do hope the world sees it and understands and you know values it in form of this art form. I think fashion is seen as an art form from my own perspective. And I think the impact that I hope people will get from that is to see and appreciate what I've created, not only as fashion, but much more as an art form for the female form. But essentially, the most importantly is understanding the stories behind each and every piece that I create. Mm-hmm. What surprised you about this process of working with VS to create this collection? What surprised me? Yeah. <laughs> what surprised me is I surprised myself by the amount of time I uh, I used to be able to create all these hand processes. I realized that I actually work quite well under pressure. So, oh. <laughs> so yeah, I surprised myself by being able to um, meet up with all the deadlines. Because usually I don't have anyone telling me, oh, we have a deadline for this, this and that. I usually always work on according to my own deadlines. I get commissioned by museums and galleries, but they always work with my own deadlines. But working in this case with VS and they're like, okay, we have to shoot on this day and this day. And I'm like, okay, but all my processes take like but the six worms months, are not ready. Eight, eight, eight months <laughs> to create. There's another piece that we were making from a tree. It's, we scrape the body of the tree. We have to beat it, stretch it soak it in water for about six months, then dye it in clay. It was like, okay, okay, guys, you guys need, need to understand how I have to convince all my artisans that I'm not crazy in this time frame. And thankfully, everyone worked according to this time schedule. So I think a lot of my work has to do with space and time. So in this time frame, I, I think I surprised myself in terms of how I was able to create in the space for the body according to the time. Mm. Boo-boo, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm so curious to actually <laughs> see what you've designed. Sounds extraordinary. And thank you for the work you do. And and thank you for taking the time today to, to share your some of your journey with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on here. I enjoyed speaking with you. You too. Thank you so much. You have been listening to VS Voices, the official companion podcast to the VS World Tour. My thanks to today's guest. And if you love our show, please comment, like, and follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And as always, you can join me, Amanda DeCadene, on Instagram. VS Voices is part of Victoria's Secret's ongoing commitment to creating positive change for women. Together, we are amplifying the voices and perspectives of women from all backgrounds. And please remember that sharing stories brings us closer together. Thank you for listening.